Hi, thanks so much for tuning into the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast, where I do a deep dive into the strategies and mindset behind launching, scaling, and leading a high-impact nonprofit. I'm your host, Brooke Ritchie Babbage, and you're listening to episode number 15. So I've known the incredible Anna Polanco for going on three years now. Anna is an intuitive international coach, storyteller, and wisdom keeper who helps culturally diverse women and social change organizations find new ways of leading. I had the privilege of working with Anna on an initiative to help build and hold space for an impact network called the Sterling Network, working to expand economic justice at the intersection of racial equity here in New York City. One thing that I came to know and respect about Anna is how authentically she shows up in every space that she inhabits. She is a beautiful case study in how to do and lead deep social change work in a way that is aligned with one's values, past, and purpose. I've wanted to talk to Anna for this series on sustainable leadership for precisely that reason. Leading from a whole self perspective requires intentionality and practice and replenishment. This is a major theme in our conversation for this week's podcast. Anna and I get into the nuts and bolts of what it means to move through the world as one's whole self, how to reshape our own leadership practices to make them more reflective of our whole selves, and perhaps most importantly, how to work and lead in ways that refill us and replenish us rather than deplete us. There's so many great takeaways in today's episode. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Anna. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. So excited to be having this conversation with you. Oh, it's amazing. I feel like it's timely and I'm just excited to talk about this topic because it's everywhere. (laughs) We were talking right before I hit record about this theme of sustainability and pausing and what it actually takes to do our work has just been coming up for both of us. So why don't we start there? When I say sustainable leadership, (laughs) capital S, capital L, where does your mind go? What comes up for you? I have to go back to the email. So when you sent me the email, I was so excited, right? And you mentioned what we were going to be talking about. And the question that came to mind was, what are we trying to sustain? (laughs) It was a just visceral gut reaction. It was like, wait, do I know what we're trying to sustain? And especially in the nonprofit context, you know, it's a real question. And I think you're right that depending on what we're talking about and what we mean by leadership, you know, it really changes that descriptor and it really changes this question of sustainability. Are we talking about sustaining the people in an organization? Are we talking about the work itself, which is almost like its own entity, right? And how that gets led and is that in and of itself sustainable? Yeah. So my heart went in so many different directions. And I think the answer that my gut like resonated back was, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I just don't know. Yeah. I think that's partly why I am really loving this series of conversations, because as I said to you when we started, I don't have a sort of scripted list of questions. It's not an interview. It's an exploration of a topic that I think a lot of us are sitting with and grappling with. And there isn't an answer to what sustainable leadership 
means and looks like for any one person. But I love what you just said. I wrote down people and work. Maybe starting with how do we think about what it means to sustain the people? One thing that I have always loved about your work is how grounded your coaching is in the whole self. Mm. Isn't just the tasks that I have to complete or the leadership that I'm engaged in. It's me as a person and everything that I'm bringing into the work as I move through the world. So within that context, how might we understand sustaining ourselves? Mm -hmm. I think we can start with this question of the whole self. A lot of times, depending on who you're talking to, we see a divide in who gets to bring their whole self to work, right? So there are some people who show up at work and I don't know if they're their whole selves, but there's a lot of themselves there. <laughs> right? Just a lot of personality, a lot of vocalizing their needs and their experiences. And then there's another group of people who are, whether they want to or not, are relatively silent or silenced in that their experience and the way they think about wholeness is not acknowledged or not seen as relevant in the workplace. And so wholeness in this case is maybe first locating, right, ourselves and saying, well, how much of me is seen and what parts of me are seen and heard at work? And in recent months, you know, particularly around the pressures and the exhaustion around COVID, we're really seeing people who maybe have been invisible breaking through and saying enough, like we've heard you (laughs) or we've, we've experienced you. And then other people maybe who have been taking up more space really now all of a sudden saying, well, maybe I take up too much space or maybe I the kind of ways I take up space are not fruitful for this moment, which is this moment is so raw and it's so vulnerable. And we have are having a different experience at every minute of the day. And before, I used to say that all the time to clients, like before COVID. And now it's like, we really are having a different experience every minute of the day. I think the first is acknowledging that, right? Acknowledging that there are these two groups. Some are heard, some are not heard. And what are we hearing? What are we actually hearing from people? Is it about the work itself or the mission? Or is it actually something else Mm. for them that actually has nothing to do with the work, right? Mm. It's like we have these invisible, not invisible, maybe like semi-invisible traumas that come from our family experiences, life experiences, community experience, and they often show up in the workplace. Yeah. Sometimes you might be sitting there listening to someone thinking, what's happening right now? And then all of a sudden say, hmm. That sounds like something maybe that happened in my, like in in a family or someone I know that happened to them, or maybe you have direct experience with. And it's like, is that, and I don't know the answer, is that something that we should be working on in the workplace? It's a genuine question. Well, I mean, I think what's interesting is when COVID first started to really pick up speed last spring, last summer, and organizations were thinking a lot about work from home and how do we make that work? 
there were a lot of conversations about boundaries mm. and about shifting and in some ways eradication of boundaries. And the conversations that I often heard sounded something like this. Well, you know, before COVID, before work from home, if your child was sick, if your partner had a problem, if you were having a really tough day, if you were caring for elderly parents, whatever the thing you were doing in your life was your life, you could take some time off to deal with that. You know, my organization gives very generous time off, right? That was often a qualifier that I heard. And then you do what you need to do offsite so that when you arrive at work, you are ready to work. Right. And so I heard variations on that theme and the consternation that organizational leaders felt about that model disintegrating. Right. So now what do I say to people where I can see in the Zoom that you can't possibly be fully concentrating on this meeting because I see what's happening in your house right now and that you have four people there, you know, one of whom is four, right? There was a grappling that I think we're still undergoing with what is for work and what is for home and what is for self and what do we do when those lines are blurred? And part of what I think I hear you saying is that those lines are false, right? There shouldn't be this distinction between home and work and self and work self. Right. And there was a time that it wasn't, right? Like we can look back in history and really see, I mean, dating to really early times in humanity, right? Where people were organized according to tribe, uh, smaller circles or communities, and those smaller circles form together and those create nations and those nations create empires, right? And so, but always held by that small circle, right? By that, that inner circle. And even in some ancestral communities or tribal communities, even mothers were not expected to care for the child alone. That actually it was like an entire tribe's responsibility to rear that child. And in some tribal communities, there were two mothers to the child that the child acknowledged as a mother, right? The biological mother, the mother who's like primary job is to rear that child and often the sister, right? Or a niece or someone in that immediate bloodline who could also take up the role. And so there are these expectations that we have placed on each other that are not sustainable at all. And I think that's what we're seeing. It's like this facade of saying, I can leave everything that's happening outside of work, like at the door when I enter and just pretend like it's not happening. When the truth is all day, we are trying to figure out how to balance all the pieces. And so then what happens, we have a thing like COVID And now everything is crashing against each other, right? It's like work, a parent, um, someone who seemed completely healthy becoming ill with after effects, right? We We have yet to see the depth of what COVID will bring. I have several colleagues who had mild cases of COVID who then later form symptoms, all kinds of symptoms that are going to have long-term effects on their bodies. And so there's a lot that we take for granted about how people can show up. And it was there before is what we have to remember. Before COVID, it was already breaking. Right. It was already breaking. We just refuse to look at it collectively and say, maybe we don't need this. 
maybe this model is outdated. (laughs) So what do we take with us? I mean, if we assume that so much about how we've been thinking about work and home and leadership is breaking down, Mm -hmm. and there's an opportunity forcing function, depending on your, your perspective, to rebuild in a way that allows people to work in ways that are more sustainable. Yes. What do you think we take with us? What should it look like? I think we have to take that founder innovation, right? I love what you were telling me the story about when you're first starting an organization, right? You're, you're really down to the fundamentals. It's you, your coffee cup, the couch, maybe a friend, right? Your neighbor, yes. whatever you can get, right? We bring it all together. And there's something about that initial stage where we're willing to try anything, right? We're just willing. We just say, It's so exciting to me about that phase. Absolutely. So much possibility. Yeah, there's possibility and there is opportunity to experiment and to try on things and not get attached if it doesn't work. So many organizations are afraid to fail. And that's also because they're living their work and their purpose and mission in ways that are unsustainable. Mm, so we, when I did human rights work, I remember we would get these requests for a work plan and yes. I would put together what I thought was a reasonable work plan. And often someone above me would say that that was not reasonable. So the first thing too, you know, beyond being experimental is to like trust the instincts of the people who are trying to implement the work, especially in a large organization, right? We often don't trust that. We often say, well, I know that we need to meet this deliverable for this external person that's not even part of the organization. And we're somehow afraid to say to that person, we can't do that. That's not realistic. It's not sustainable and we won't be able to measure impact. So if we say we care about impact, right, which many groups do, then maybe we should try to have a a much more reasonable trusting approach to how the work gets delivered. So I think those two things are critical. And then I think, you know, the third one is, well, let me just say something further. The third one for some of us in the nonprofit world, and I, I can only speak for the experience I have had coaching women of color. So I don't want to speak for other women, but For those of us that I have engaged with and in my own experience, we often have no idea where the boundary is for us. It's not even just that the boundaries are clear and they are being blurred. We don't necessarily know what the boundaries should be for us. That's right. That's right. And so for us, we almost need like a triple check. Like It's like, okay, I think this is what could be delivered. And then somebody who's like, in a really rooted, grounded place needs to come and say, actually, it's probably like 30% less than that. So let's cut all this other other stuff so that you can have time to be creative, to innovate, to to reflect on the work and to have downtime and plan for emergencies, right? Plan for the unexpected, that we're just not so good at that. And it's okay for us to admit that, that we've been overperforming to make ourselves seen and heard in the nonprofit world. And it's okay for us to say, wow, these systems are breaking down and this is our opportunity to reimagine ourselves, right? 
as we reimagine the system. So I feel like that's critical. Ask you about um, something we were talking about before we started the this conversation about your coaching practice and your work to bring to allow for pause to sort of simplify what the journey looks like for the women that you work with. Mm-hmm. To me, that is an example of how you are trying to integrate actual sustainable practices, right? To show people what it looks like to move through the world as a woman of color who is leading or who is doing sort of social impact work in a way that is sustainable. I'm assuming that was intentional. Is that part of how you've been thinking about your coaching with the women that you work with? It's definitely an intentional and is deeply rooted historically for me. Like in my 20s, when I was organizing, doing political work with, with labor unions, being burnt out in your work was a badge of honor. Yeah. Same for me when I was practicing law. That's right. It was a badge of honor and I didn't question it. I was young. I was hungry. Right. I, I, I believed in the mission of the labor movement and I really wanted to make a contribution and see the impact. And so I could easily allow myself to burn out and then justify it. Right. And say, I'll recover. I'll take some weeks off. And the movement itself would say to me, do take some weeks off because there are generous benefits, right? So we have to be careful with those golden shackles, right? Something you're, you're paid well, but really at what, what costs emotionally. And so I, I took it for granted then. And then in my 30s, I found myself in the same situation, except I didn't feel the same way. I felt like, what was I making an impact on? And then what was that sustainable? And how come the cost on the line, right? On the profit and loss line, what? why was the loss always that I was burnt out? And of course, with age, it becomes more difficult to recover, right? Because the body is aging. You know, when you're, you were doing your labor work and I was doing my, my work as a baby lawyer, we were in our 20s. <laughs> we have boundless energy. Boundless. <laughs> boundless. Yeah, I just think that Burnout culture shouldn't be a thing and it shouldn't be a rite of passage. And instead, we should really, we really need to pay attention to what is the culture of work that doesn't sacrifice people at the expense of the impact that we're trying to accomplish. Like, it doesn't make sense that I, the daughter of immigrant workers from the U.S., would then go work and advocate for immigrant workers and potentially be exhausted and depleted in the process, right? And, and emotionally exhausted because some of the additional labors that women of color are doing in the workplace, let's face it, we're doing the job we're contracted for. And we're also doing the job of raising questions of racial, gender equity, the intersection of the two, and discovering it for ourselves at the same time. And some places of work, I always think to my first job, I was doing all of that work without health insurance, you know, which is fascinating, right? I was working in the labor movement without health insurance. Yeah, How could that be? I had no access to the traditional resources that I should have had access to, right? So we need to have wellness plans in the workplace. And 
People need to be paid a livable wage, right? And maybe jobs don't need to be full-time. Maybe they should be time-bound. Maybe there should be half-time jobs. Yeah. Maybe we should have a society where people can explore other ways of organizing work so it doesn't take over. So we can get inspiration. Some of the best moments I've had for inspiration didn't come while I was at work. Oh, absolutely. You know? Your brain has to... Oh able to rest in those moments of sort of quiet that's when we have moments of inspiration I hear two things that are just that really resonate with me in this conversation about what we even mean by sustainability I hear sort of a structural piece which is a theme that's come up in a lot of the conversations I've had right how do we think about reimagine work and workplaces structurally how we do work. And then I I also hear a mindset piece. And that part really resonates because I think one of the things we struggle with in the nonprofit sector is this badge of honor concept, right? Mm. I think it's not just the labor movement or, you know, legal aid work. I think there is something about doing social justice, social impact work, at least in my experience. and, And I work with a lot of people who are sort of in the early stages of building their organizations and this sense of like, if I really believe in this mission, Mm -hmm. really want to commit to having an impact in this world, I have to be willing to sacrifice myself. And nobody says those words. Nobody's going to come out and be like, I'm a martyr for my cause. But that's the ethos in our sector that if you are really committed to your mission, two things must be true. You're not going to ask for money because Mm -hmm. if you ask for money, it means you want the money, not the mission, which somehow I guess can't both be true. And (laughs) we'll be willing to work 70, 80, 90 hours a week to prove how much you care about your mission. And that is particularly true, I have found, with leaders, with people who Mm -hmm. are founders or the leaders of organizations that if you say, but actually we're not going to do that, then somehow there's a questioning or you fear there will be a questioning of your, Mm -hmm. of how much you believe in your mission. And that minds, that feels more insidious to me in certain ways than the structural challenges. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you shift mind? I mean, (laughs) That's a cultural problem, right? It's it's like all hands on deck. And I think there are there are certainly things we can do systemically to change that, right? So some of the things, you know, there are a lot of nonprofits where people are working without health insurance. There are places where leaders are signaling that performance is not up to par. And then there are also some systemic ways in which we measure performance that doesn't include other ways of being. I mean, think about that annual review. We all know that dreaded annual review or biannual review. What is it actually measuring? Can it take the whole, like all the gifts and talents that people are bringing to the table into account? And should it, and to what extent, right? So I think it's got multiple prongs. And then leaders, I I really think, I mean, this is going to be the hardest period for executive leaders because the thing that got you to your executive role is not the thing that's going to make your organization successful and sustainable. Oh my God, I need 
that says that what got you here and it's almost unfair like what got you here is just not going to get you there you're not going to be able to grow you're not going to be able to scale you're not going to have the sustainable impact you're not going to last in the role all of the things won't yeah it won't happen and more and more people are aware generations are aware that like i don't want to work I don't want to see you 40 hours a week, even, you know, let alone 80, right? That's right. I don't want to see you that many hours. And being at home shows me that I'm actually maybe only productive about three or four hours a day, right? Like my creativity, my, my generosity, my sense of purpose is there for about four hours. And most people would say, well, that's crazy. <laughs> is it? It, it feels it, my body is not resisting and my body is an excellent test for somatic, like somatic knowledge. And my body is not resisting that idea. And it feels spacious to say, maybe I do only work four hours a day, but they're the best and most interesting four hours of my day. I might do some other smaller administrative things, but really the heart of my work is in that time period and that a lot can happen in that space. This is also really hard because this is the period where so many women of color were being recruited, right, into executive roles, given all the social unrest and the murders that happened last year that were so visible in the press. There, like, there seemed to be a trifecta of things happening between, like, 2017 and 2020 that just created this perfect storm. And so... Now women of color are in these executive roles. They, they can't do the thing they did to get them forward, but they know it really well. Yeah. And so how do you begin to break those habits is critical. And I think more and more organizations are going to have to bring in what are like non-strategic in quotes, right? Kinds of training yes. to support people to understand how to listen deeply how to give resonance to people. You know, people are listening, but they don't actually know what was said. They're just sort of waiting to say the next thing, right? And that's really hard to admit, but we've all been there. We've, we've all been at that place. And so leaders are going to have to think somatically. They're going to have to think in other ways. They're going to have to make a list of their habits and say, these are the three things I'm going to try to break this month, right? Or in the next six months. That's right. Yeah. That's hard. It is hard. I mean, we were talking about just in our own lives, how you can know the changes and the intentionality can be there and it's still hard. I think one of the things, and you and I have talked about this in past lives, (laughs) um, (laughs) that has been just really powerful in my own life. And I think it's a beautiful thing about how you structure your, your coaching work is that community is really important. That a big part of my coming to understand that if I was going to grow my organization, like get it to the next level of impact that I really saw in my mind's eye we could have, but I wasn't going to brute force my way there. It wasn't going to be adding 20 hours to the 50 I was already doing or the 70 I was already doing. That mindset piece became clear to me when I started meeting or clearer to me when I started meeting with my sustainable sisterhood. Is that group of women that you've heard me talk about who are also EDs, who are also on this journey. And we started to realize, oh, wait a minute. There are 
smart ways to work. There is power in the pause. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my dear friends, Kemi, who is also on this podcast, recently came back from a three-month sabbatical. And it was one of the most radical and revolutionary acts of leadership by a Black woman that I have seen in my life because what she said wasn't, I'm leaving because I'm burned out. No, it was an affirmative, positive signal to her team and the world and their supporters and their stakeholders that this is part of leadership. Mm-hmm. That I am creative in spaces of pause, that I am rejuvenated in spaces of pause. I am a better manager. I'm a better, I'm a better visionary and strategic thinker. All of the things are better when I build in a cycle of pause and rejuvenation. And she has really great writing about that. And, and I just think back to the central role that being part of that community, that seeing signals of, oh, it's safe to say to a funder, I'm pausing. My other friend, Susie, who ran Opening Act, who was also part of the sustainable, same thing, sabbatical. You know, so I think when I think of strategies, I think building a community or network for me of other women leaders, but, you know, just of other people who are on your journey who can say to you, so last week was 60 hours, the week before was 80 hours. That we rethink, you know, what are the, how do we break that, right? That can be that voice, those voices for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's basically why I started the Wild Dreams Group Coaching Program for Women of Color, because we needed circles, and we needed a circle. The number one thing that I hear from people who participated and people who want to participate is like, I just need a space where I can be without holding everything and everyone else. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. You know, it's like, it's that simple, right? It's like, give people the grace of that and acknowledge that they are exhausted. Yeah. And they're overtapped and they don't know their boundaries. And how sweet is it that you could be in a circle with other women exactly the way you're describing, Brooke, that would acknowledge you and would say, yeah, yeah, me too, right? I've been there. I've been there where you are. And sometimes that's enough. And other times there's a bonus and you get some advice or coaching or mentorship, right? All all the things. Yes, we need more of these circles. We need to be in circles where everything is not set in stone and where people can emerge into something new and get permission to just see themselves differently in a new light. And it takes time. And it's not like work of thousands. Like you're not going to show up at a thousand person conference and be like, really emerging. You know, it just isn't going to happen. I'm sure the conference will be great. But as someone who has planned many conferences, that's not really the purpose of a conference, right? This is small work. This is intimate work. This is like spirit led work, right? It's like for your soul. It needs to happen. And now's the time. And I'm actually excited that I see so many programs like this. Like that, that is like, it's everywhere in every sector, in some places that are not even a sector, just sort of like brand new emergent ideas. Some are volunteers, some are writing groups. It's just everywhere. And we know we need this. And we know this works because if we think about the period of the 60s and 70s, that's what people did, right? In the middle of movement. Yes. <laughs> we gathered. Iconic shifts that we saw 
take place in our country and our culture and how we work for women, for people of color. Yeah, that's a really good point. Ah, yeah, we need only to look at, yeah, those activists. There's so many. I love seeing those pictures of like Audre Lorde and somebody's like living room, right? Or even Charlie Shazam, right? Like I just imagine Dolores Huerta sitting somewhere, right? With other workers doing nothing that looks relatively interesting other than gathering, building a circle, talking to each other, resonating. That's enough. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot think of a better way to, <laughs> I just want to, end there because that's enough. (laughs) What you said is exactly right and deeply resonates and as usual is just wonderful and right on time. And I thank you for having this conversation with me. Thank you for doing this podcast. (laughs) Maybe no one has said that yet, but by the way, (laughs) thanks for finally doing the podcast. We're so excited. (laughs) Bravo, bravo. (laughs) I'm glad you were able to be part of it. And I will look forward to the next time we're able to talk. Thank you for joining me this week. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends. You can also learn more about Anna and her wonderful coaching program at AnnaPolanco.org. Finally, before you go, I have two announcements. First, I'm really excited to say that the doors to my Nonprofit Impact Accelerator are reopening on April 15th. The Impact Accelerator is a high-touch six-month accelerator for small nonprofit organizations that are ready to scale to their first million dollars in a sustainable way. You can learn more and apply for the accelerator at richiebabbage.com backslash accelerator. Second, if you're doing your own thinking about or work on making your own practice of leadership more sustainable, I would love for you to sign up for my free sustainable leadership e-course, where I walk you through how to lead from a state of abundance and stability, as opposed to scarcity and overwhelm. Every week for four weeks, I'll send you a brief e-lesson, an activity, and curated readings to support you in creating a deeper, more sustainable practice of leadership. To sign up for that, go to richiebabbage.com backslash sustainability. That's all for now. Have a great week and I'll see you back here next week for more Mastermind.